Good morning. My name is Kelly Tarasovich, and I'll be reading from Genesis chapter 38, verses 1 through 30. About this time, Judah left home and moved to Adullam, where he stayed with a man named Hira. There he saw a Canaanite woman, the daughter of Shua, and he married her. When he slept with her, she became pregnant and gave birth to a son and named the boy Ur. Then she became pregnant again and gave birth to another son, and she named him Onan. And when she gave birth to a third son, she named him Shelah. At the time of Shelah's birth, they were living in Kizeth. In the course of time, Judah arranged for his firstborn son, Ur, to marry a woman named Tamar. But Ur was, Ur was a wicked man in the Lord's sight, so the Lord took his life. Then Judah said to Ur's brother Onan, Go and marry Tamar, as our law requires the brother of a man who has died. You must produce an heir for your brother. But Onan was not willing to have a child who would not be his own heir. So whenever he had intercourse with his brother's wife, he spilled the semen on the ground. This prevented her from having a child who would belong to his brother. But the Lord considered it evil for Onan to deny a child to his dead brother. So the Lord took Onan's life too. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Go back to your parents' home and remain a widow until my son Shelah is old enough to marry you. But Judah did not really intend to do this because he was afraid Shelah would also die like his two brothers. So Tamar went back to live in her father's home. Some years later, Judah's wife died. After the time of mourning was over, Judah and his friend Hira the Adulamite went up to Timnah to supervise the shearing of his sheep. Someone told Tamar, look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. Tamar was aware that Sheila had grown up, but no arrangements had been made for her to come and marry him. So she changed out of her widow's clothing and covered herself in a veil to disguise herself. Then she sat beside the road at the entrance to the village of Enaim, which is the road to Timnah. Judah noticed her and thought she was a prostitute since she had covered her face. So he stopped and propositioned her. Let me have sex with you, he said, not realizing that she was his own daughter-in-law. How much will you pay to have sex with me, Tamar asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, Judah promised. But what will you give me to guarantee that you will send the goat, she asked. What kind of guarantee do you want? She answered, leave me your identification seal and its cord and the walking stick you are carrying. So Judah gave them to her. Then he had intercourse with her and she became pregnant. Afterwards, she went back home, took off her veil, and put on her widow's clothing as usual. Later, Judah asked his friend Hira, the Adulamite, to take the young goat to the woman and pick up the things he had given her as his guarantee. But Hira could not find her, so he asked the men who lived there, where can I find the shrine prostitute who is sitting beside the road at the entrance to Enam? We've never had a shrine prostitute here, they replied. So Hira returned to Judah and told him, I could not find her anywhere, and the men of the village claim they've never had a shrine prostitute there. Then let her keep the things I gave her, Judah said. I sent the young goat as we agreed, but you could not find her. We'd be the laughing stock of the village if we went back to look for her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has acted like a prostitute, and now, because of this, she's pregnant. Bring her out and let her be burned, Judah demanded. 
But as they were taking her out to kill her, she sent this message to her father-in-law. The man who owns these things made me pregnant. Look closely. Whose seal and cord and walking stick are these? Judah recognized them immediately and said, She is more righteous than I am, because I didn't arrange for her to marry my son, Shelah. And Judah never slept with Tamar again. When the time came for Tamar to give birth, it was discovered that she was carrying twins. While she was in labor, one of these babies reached out his hand. The midwife grabbed it and tied a scarlet string around the child's wrist, announcing, This one came out first. But when he pulled back his hand, out came his brother. What, the midwife exclaimed, how did you break out first? So he was named Perez, and the baby with the scarlet string on his wrist was born, and he was named Zira. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you may be seated. You are already sitting. That's great. Praise the Lord. I know it's a little wet outside. I promise you it will be sunny and 67 degrees today at 4 p.m. The weather.com told me. God did not tell me that, but weather.com told me. So thank you for braving the, the weather, especially to our welcome team that was out there with the with, um, umbrella. Thank you for doing that. Look, the rain stops. It is, you know. um, good morning. Glad you could join us this morning. Hopefully you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving, a very warm Thanksgiving at that. Hopefully you guys had lots of food to eat, great time with family, and we're glad you could join us. My name is Josh Kim. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central. Um, today marks the end of Thanksgiving. I know some of you are thinking Cyber Monday is coming, right? Um, the shopping is not done yet, but oftentimes we do that because the Thanksgiving season is over, and now when you go to Target, the Walmart, you will see all the red coming out. All the brown and the, the orange is going away, the red is coming out, and the Christmas season is finally here with us. And starting this Sunday, we start what we call an Advent season. Advent has roots in Latin word called Adventus, which signals, uh, which means coming. So in this season, we're waiting a coming of our Savior. So in this season of Advent that we're heading into starting today, we'll spend the next four Sundays in a short sermon series called The Woman of Christmas. The Woman of Christmas. What we'll do is we'll examine often forgotten women in Jesus' genealogy to see how they bring us the hope of Christmas to us. And we begin today's story with Tamar, or someone would like to say Tamar. And I want to make sure to say this as my wise older brother in Christ, Pastor Omari, shared this with me when we discussed preaching on women of Christmas. And he simply said, how do we, and this is his words, how do we do justice with their stories as men? How do we speak to their gender-specific trials that they face in the scripture? What a challenge awaits us this month. And I was so grateful for my brother's wisdom, and I could say that we surely cannot do justice especially as men trying to preach this text. But we will do our best to be faithful to the scripture that God has given us. And needless to say, I invite you all on a journey with us. Pray with us in this time as we look to the scripture to see how God uses this forgotten woman at times to bring us to the hope of Christmas that we celebrate. When we get to the story, simple headlines could be scandal, family drama, or deception. 
Scandal, family drama, deception could be a title of today's story. These are the headlines we often think of when we think of Tamar. There is nothing Game of Thrones or any other movies out there has on this story today. Perhaps without the help of technology today, you will be glued to this scripture because it is very juicy, to say the least. Imagine having a dinner conversation around the table with this family, right? As they're sitting around after a big meal, it's an uncle, so-and-so. It's always an uncle, isn't it? Who tells the young Perez and Zara, well, let me tell you something that you probably don't know. Your grandfather is actually your father, right? It's not like, look, I'm your father. It's like, hey, that's your grandfather, but your father as well. And not only so, guess what? Your mom had two husbands before. They're also in our family. Scandal, right? Can you imagine the scandal it erupted in the family? Talk about a difficult holiday gathering. This is the family you don't want to go to for holidays at that. Not only this story tells us of a complicated nature of the family dynamics, mainly at the center on Judah's spectacular failure, right? But in the middle of all this story, we find Tamar, a woman who faces impossible situations and injustice. And quite often, we focus upon her deception, dressing up as a prostitute, tricking her father-in-law. But what we should not forget this morning, church, is focus is not merely upon Tamar's deception in this story, but what we find is a woman of God whom God works through to bring us to Christ. Do you know that? Because Tamar in Genesis chapter 38 is also mentioned in the New Testament book of Matthew. In the beginning of the gospel of Christ, this is what Matthew writes. This is the record of ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, the descendant of David and Abraham. And you're thinking, that's right. Let's start with David and Abraham. You got this story correct. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Yes, we love Isaac, right? We heard so many Sunday school stories about Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Okay, I get that. Father of Jacob. Great. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. We're like, okay, now getting a little bit uncomfortable here. And all of a sudden he says, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah. All right, that's good. And he says, whose mother was Tamar. Scripture is explicitly clear that Tamar is named in part of Jesus' genealogy, first of the five women that is mentioned in this genealogy. Not Sarah. I know a lot of us name our kids Sarah. Not Rebecca. Not Rachel. Not Hannah. All these great biblical names, great women of the Scripture. But they name Tamar the deceiver in the genealogy. And there are many debates as to why Matthew may include this woman. I believe one of the main reasons, as we see, is to show us our path to Christ, our hope that we find in Christmas as Tamar represents and pictures for us who God is, who God sees in the midst of the struggles to find hope, to ultimately bring us to hope of Christmas through Tamar's amazing testimony. You ready for the journey? Here on the onset, we find a woman who is unseen by the world. We see Tamar that is unseen by this world. The story begins today, this church, this morning, with Judah going down, going down and away from his family. And as any careful reader of the Bible would know, anytime you go away from Jerusalem, away from the family, that's not good, right? That's nothing good happens 
uh, not at 2 a.m., but nothing good happens when you're away from Jerusalem or your family, especially in the Old Testament time, going away from God's given promised land is no-no. It says in verse 1, about this time, Judah left home, moved to Adullam, where he stayed with a man named Hira. And why is Judah moving away from home? Well, we'll get to this in a little bit. But remember, chapter 38 comes after chapter 37, right? Surprise, surprise. But remember, in chapter 37, verse 36, this is what he says. Meanwhile, the Midianites traders arrived in Egypt, where they saw Joseph. Remember the Joseph with the color coat, right? Guess what happens to him? He gets sold as a slave. Where they sold Joseph to Potiphar, the officer of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. Potiphar was captain of the palace guard. You see, the story of Genesis talks about Joseph, and he pauses here. Before we pick up Joseph's story in chapter 39, we have a story of Tamar and the story of Judah here. And here, that's what we see. Joseph is sold to the Midianites. The one who had idea to sell Joseph, none other than Judah himself. So perhaps out of guilt, perhaps out of fear, perhaps out of turmoil that he's facing, we see Judah going away from his family. And he finds a friend named Hira. Not a good friend, it seems. In verse 2, it says, There he saw a Canaanite woman, the daughter of Shua, and he married her. And when he slept with her, and the story goes, he marries a Canaanite, a Gentile woman. Mind you, notice that as well. Her name is not given. Only her father's name was given, Shua, which means a generous man of social stature. Not mentioning wife's name, but emphasizing the status of the father-in-law. Many commentators suggest that Judah marries into the society, does not really have a care for the woman, per se, but wants to get into the entrance into new society that he was trying to get acclimated. You see, the lack of family bond is evident throughout in verse 3. After he sleeps with her, she becomes pregnant and gave birth to a son, and he names her Ur. Then she became pregnant again and gave birth to another son, and, catch this detail, church, she names him Onan. And when she gave birth to a third son, she names him Shelah. Notice the eldest son is named by Judah, but next two sons are named by nameless Judah's wife, perhaps to show a brokenness in the family. Tamar, whom we see in this story, enters the story at this point. Tamar, who we presume to be Canaanite, is a Gentile living in the region, marries into the family of Judah. Verse 6 says, In the course of time, Judah arranged for his son, first son, Ur, to marry a young woman named Tamar, as the custom of the day. But Ur was a wicked man in the Lord's sight. So the Lord took his life, and Judah said to Ur's brother Onan, Go and marry Tamar, as our law requires of the brother of a man who has died. You must produce an heir for your brother. You see, a tragedy continues to strike this family. We're not told exactly why Judah's eldest, Ur, was wicked in the Lord's sight, but the life is swiftly taken away, simply as that. Many commentators actually say perhaps it's due to a sexual abuse, citing um, Onan's actions, saying Ur did not try to get pregnant with Tamar, rather just used her. You see, regardless of the the reason why we see God strikes him down, takes his life away. And following the leveret marriage custom at the time, which was a legal proceeding, or not only legal but honor custom at the time, 
the widow of the oldest son was given to the next son in hopes of birthing a child to carry on the eldest child's lineage. But guess what Onan does? Onan does not want that. He does not want his brother's child. Rather than doing what is his rightful duty, he rather deceives his father and then uses Tamar for sexual pleasure but does not fulfill his duty. Might I say Onan here is sexually abusive, using Tamar for pleasure at the expense of her vulnerability, taking advantage of the situation without properly owning her responsibility and duty, his responsibility and duty. What is Tamar to do, church? In this powerless dynamics that she's stuck in, in the way of justice, we see God strike on and down. The text says this too is wicked in God's eyes. So Onan's life is also taken by God. Now we come to this point and Judah is left with his youngest son. Two of his sons are dead and his youngest son must be given to Tamar for marriage by the leverage law to have another child to carry on the line. But now Judah is wondering, well, my two sons are dead married to this woman. And he wonders and fears the same fate will come to his only son and wrongly considers that Tamar has something to do with it. So instead of risking his son to die, he decided to deceive Tamar and sends Tamar away. The tragic reality is that not only Judah deceives Tamar and does not see Tamar's need here, but the world that Tamar was living in, the society and the custom that often wrongly placed the blame on the woman was the time and the place Tamar lived in. Theologians actually have studied this theme of killer wife. And looking at the writings of different rabbis at the time who often likened the woman being created for devil's purpose. Not only this rabbinic traditions, but you know even our church fathers our reformers that we hold up to, we celebrate during Reformation, they often criticize women and categorize women as less intelligent and oftentimes at fault of deception at that. And we'll see that God does not look at women like that, and he absolutely changes that perspective in a little bit because God created men and women equal, and we all have fallen short, and sin is never placed upon others to blame. So when we go back to the story here, we see Judah is falsely deceiving Tamar, falsely placing blame on Tamar, and pawns off her off to her dad. And this gives an empty promise to her in return. Verse 11 says, Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Go back to your parents' home and remain a widow until my son Sheila is old enough to marry you. But Judah didn't really intend to do this because he was afraid Sheila would also die like his two brothers. So Tamar went back to live in her house, her father's house, alone. Church, this is where we find Tamar this morning. Tamar is not only wrongly blamed for the death of not one, but two husbands. She also experiences the pain of losing not one, but two husbands. To make matters worse, because Onan's deceitfulness, there's even a possibility that some 
may think that she is barren, meaning she is wrongly labeled unable to bear a child, which was big no-no at the time and was often seen as a curse upon the life. So she's carrying this false reputation as a barren woman, potential hindrance to any family and mostly an embodiment of a curse by her or by her family. And to make matters worse, not only we see no defense for her by her family, there are no words of comfort in this situation for her, not by her brother-in-law who abuses her, not by her husband, and definitely not by her father-in-law who's supposed to care for her, but only given a false promise that the third son will be given at a later time for a possible child. Tamar is sent back home shamed, blamed, to live the rest of her life in isolation, away from her rightful place, unseen, unloved, used, abused, and tossed aside by her husband, by her abusive brother-in-law, and by her deceiving father-in-law, and by the world and society that she lived in. This is how Tamar's story begins this morning. And perhaps some of you get it, especially in this season of Christmas. You get the story unseen, underappreciated, shamed, broken, unable to get yourself out of the mess. Perhaps by our own failure, but quite often due to the sins of others. Circumstances that are out of our control and often left wondering, who sees me? Anyone see what I'm going through here today? Am I left alone in this world? Did God abandon me? Am I alone in this mess with no one able to see the struggle that I'm going through? Perhaps even wondering if these voices that I hear are right. Maybe the fault right lies within me. Maybe I'm the one that's born with the curse. I'm not blessed like those other women with lots of babies and a big family. Perhaps some of you wonder the same in your own life, thinking, am I the problem? Is there something wrong within my life, within myself? Am I making a too big of a deal out of this? Am I made this way from the beginning? Was I born with a curse? And perhaps you have closed up and said, get away from me, get away from me. I may harm you if you get too close after all. And if you are in that boat this morning, but today's story, Tamar's story tells us is that there's room for you in Christmas. You belong in the story of Christmas. God invites you to his story of Christmas. Not only because we have this amazing story of testimony of faithfulness, but what we see is a brokenness being restored by God's grace. God is at work in the midst of Tamar's brokenness. And what we see is God is at work in the midst of our brokenness in the season of Christmas. At the heart of Christmas is coming of Christ in this world, that Christ comes, perfect Savior coming into the broken world. That's our story. That's the story of Christmas. This Advent season, we're doing a church-wide devotional using our beloved sister's work called The Carol of Comfort. Anna Portillo writes about a life of Zechariah in 25 days. 
And I highly encourage you to grab a copy. We have a couple copies that you could uh, get today with the donation. But I encourage you to get it. Um, and I got this devotional because our woman's director, LeVan McLean, brought it to my attention and said, you should read this. Right? When she says to read it, I should read it. And I was immediately drawn to it. I know Anna's stories because I heard from her at times. But I was challenged and encouraged by her honesty, openness, most of all her invitation in her writing in the season of Christmas. She writes, to all who, like myself, have found, my, found themselves struggling to find comfort and joy during Christmas. May the Lord take the truth of his word and tenderly apply them as a balm to your soul this Christmas and throughout the year. Amen. Her words she writes from a testimonial perspective of telling us her story reminds us that we need Christ in this Christmas more than anything else. And I invite you for next three Sundays, we're going to ask you to come. Come and share your story with us. We're not going to do the devotional per se. We'll gather. We expect you have done the devotional. But come and share your story. And our leaders will guide you in prayer. Because we need to learn to hear one another's stories, don't we? We also need to hear Christ tell us his story to us. Because I'm one of those broken people. And I believe you are too. And we all need to hear each other's stories and be seen by one another to come and share because your story matters. In Christ, your story matters. We also need to practice learning to see one another, especially those of us who are hurting, those who are marginalized, often on the outside looking in. We hope you know that Christ Central is full of people like that. Just get to know some people here and you'll realize we're all outsiders. Only come invited to the banqueting table because Christ invites us to come and see. That's the gospel way, isn't it? If we don't do that as a church during Christmas, what are we doing? Might as well put up some trees, exchange gifts. Let us practice learning to see one another, share, pray, invite you to the gospel way. And Tamar shows us that you belong. The broken injustice system, actions of the others, consequences you and I are in, but still you and I belong. The world may not see you. The world may not see Tamar. But what we see is God is seeing Tamar, and Tamar is seen by the Lord. That's why we get to the second point here. Tamar is seen by her God. When we get to verse 12, Tamar's story does not end tragically by herself, isolated away from her rightful place. Verse 12 says, Some years later, Judah's wife died. Again, nameless. Died. At the time of mourning was over, Judah and his friend Hira, the Adolamite, went up to Timnah to supervise the shearing of his sheep. Someone told Tamar, Look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. Tamar was aware that Sheila had grown up, but no arrangement has been made for her to come and to marry him. So she changed out of her widow's clothing, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself. Then she sat beside the road at the entrance to the village of Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. Again, we find Judah, who experiences another tragic death. You're probably thinking like, Judah, come on, man, wake up. Right? There's death all around you. Something's going on here. His unnamed wife is dead, and him and his buddy decide to take a trip up. And it happens to be near Tamar's neck of woods. 
By this time, Tamar knows Judah doesn't have any desire in his mind to give the son. So she decides to take matters into her own hands. She changes out of her widow's clothing and disguises herself as a prostitute. And verse 15 says, Judah notices her. Isn't that amazing? Judah does not notice her at all before. But now, as a prostitute, Judah notices her and thought she was a prostitute since she had covered her face. So he stopped and propositioned her, saying, let me have sex with you. There's no other way about it, church, right? Let me have sex with you is what he says. He said, not realizing that she was his own daughter-in-law. How much will you pay to have sex with me, Tamar asked. Judah notices her, bargains to have sex, and he comes to a conclusion. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, Judah promised. But what will you give me to guarantee that you will send the goat, she asked. What kind of guarantee do you want, he replied. She answered, leave me your identification seal, its cord, walking stick that you're carrying. Price of goat is negotiated, but Tamar also gets ancient Near Eastern version of credit card, driver's license, and social security card. It's like, I want all three, right? I know I worked at DMV. I want all three stamped. So Judah gave them to her, saying, okay, take it all, right? Take it all. And he had intercourse with her, and she becomes pregnant. Now, story tells us Judah goes back to get the payment, but Tamar is no longer there. So Judah considers it a loss of ID, right? He's like, I'm going to get a new ID then. Perhaps that he saved the price of goat and forgot about it. But three months later, he hears a shocking news, right? Tamar is pregnant. And not knowing the child is his, he gets indignant. How dare she, he says. Maybe even thought, okay, this is a great chance to get rid of Tamar once and for all. I could start over without this woman in my life. Verse 24 says, about three months later, Judah was told. And 25 says, as they were taking her out to kill. Notice, she doesn't even stop to investigate. He doesn't even ask. Rather jumps to conclusion and demands death by cruelest method possible. Although it was rightful at the time, he says, burn her, right? But as Tamar is being dragged out to her death, Tamar shows Judah's ID. But as they were taking her out to kill her, she sent his message to his father-in-law, the man who owns these things made me pregnant. Look closely. Whose seal and cord and walking stick are these. Judah immediately recognized his ID. Tamar is pregnant with his child and thus leads to his declaration in verse 26. Judah recognized them immediately and said, she is more righteous than I am. Let that sink in for a little bit before we jump into some concluding remarks. Judah recognized them immediately and said, she is more righteous than I am because I didn't arrange for her to marry my son, Sheila, and Judah never slept with Tamar again. You see, Tamar is now restored to the rightful place. Pregnant with twins, she gives birth to the direct descendants of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the ancestor of David, Solomon, and ultimately Christ himself. What a story. And here I want us to notice a couple of things in how God works through this before we close. 
First thing we know is that, do you notice what Tamar's name means? Original listeners will immediately pick up on her name because Tamar's name means date palm, palm, palm tree, which indicated fertility at the time. You see, even, even though she was seen as barren by the society, the Bible is absolutely clear. This is not her fault. Even her name indicates that. It was the evil of Ur and Onan that fell upon them. That was their evil that struck them down. Her name alone is indication Tamar is blessed with fertility. It was not her fault. What we see in this society where blaming women for evil was common, the scripture stands against it and says, sin is sin, she is not to be blamed. Church, we often find this in our today's society too, isn't it? You know, one of the most uplifting and eye-opening things for me coming to Christ Central was one of the documents our women's shepherds, LeVan McLean and Pam Canty, with help of others, although I know Bonnie Greg also helped as well, put together. We have domestic abuse policy in our church. And you know what they told me to do? Not only let's create this, but pastor, you should go through training. And when they speak, I listen, right? So I went through this training, and my goodness, I had to repent so much. I was so rebuked, church. I was so challenged how our system today, especially in churches, and I'm not excluding our church, blame and place the burden of proof on the victims of domestic violence more so than the abuser. Many times women in this case. How heartbreaking was this? How often I neglected to see my own self even as a pastor of a church. Church, I needed to see that. We need to see that. We need training like that. We need training like what our woman shepherd, Renika Cheney, is doing with narcissism. And by God's grace, our sister's guidance, we are trying. We are learning. After all, do you know that God is in the business of flipping the sin patterns in the scripture? Do you know in the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve are deceived and they're kicked out, or they sin, actually, and they're kicked out of the garden, quite easily, we can put all the blame on, the, uh, on Eve, right, for tempting Adam to sin. And we often do that. Eve was the first that fell and tempted Adam, and we blame Adam, or blame Eve for that. And you know, that happens throughout the history. That's why all these reformers, church fathers, blame women as a result of that. And often associate Eve with snake who tempted her. But notice what it says in Genesis chapter 30, 20, right after the fall of mankind. Genesis 3, 20 says, Then the man Adam named his wife Eve because she would be the mother of all who live. Do you see that? Yes, sin has consequences and grace is absolutely needed. But woman does not equal evil and death in God's eyes. So God stamps it clearly in the scripture saying, Eve shall be mother of all living. Just like Tamar, her name alone in the scripture reminds us that she's not to be blamed. Second thing we notice is Tamar's deception is not judged as wrong only. Now, I'm not saying her actions were not deceptive. It was. 
But I want us to notice her limited choices that she had. By being impregnated by Judah, she actually follows the law of the time. The custom of the time says if all the sons were dead, were not able to give to the daughter-in-law, then the father-in-law was to father a child. That was the law. So Tamar used deception, yes, but she did what was the law told her to do when Judah wouldn't do so in this story. This point is further highlighted in Jesus' genealogy when she's rightfully named as the mother. Didn't say with the wrongful measures. Simply said, Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, as if you and I may have questions. Gospel writer says whose mother was Tamar. Listen to this, right? And yes, she is redeemed and restored. And I'll venture to say as much as we praise God of Jacob, the deceiver who was restored even though his deception to Isaac, Esau, we could also call on God of Tamar. God of Tamar, the same way, amen? Both restored in the family of God, honored. Third thing we see is she's deemed righteous when she's seen by her father-in-law. Throughout the entire narrative, we notice that Tamar is unseen, discarded, especially by her father-in-law, who was to protect and to cover for her, especially when his sons died. But when finally at the end of the story, Judah finally notices her and sees her, sees the seal, the cord, the walking stick that were given to her, her eyes are met with hers, and she is restored. She was seen as who she was truly was made to be. Rightful mother, rightful heir, rightful holder of the promise of Christmas. And church, this is the gospel hope for us, isn't it? God sees us. We don't see the mention of God throughout this narrative, but he is present throughout the entire story. He sees Tamar's pain. He sees Tamar's tears. Even though Tamar's own brokenness of deception, God sees Tamar. God vindicates Tamar by striking down Ur and Onan and brings her back into lineage, the genealogy. And generations later, we're told of her story as a rightful mother, rightful woman that belongs to the story of Christ. And that's what we see throughout the history of Christianity. We often want to see people with perfect testimonies that said, I follow God, I give my life to the Lord. But what we see in the scripture is broken people, actually. People who are deceiving, who are wanting, who are unseen. But our perfect Savior meets with them, restores them. Through their brokenness, God is glorified. That's the gospel. And that's what we see in the story of Tamar. But there's one more that we often miss in this amazing story. Remember, Genesis chapter 38 is between 37 and 39. There's a story of Joseph that is being told as well. At the beginning, we talked about how awkward the dinner table conversation must have been. Hey, Paran, Zara, your father is also your grandfather. Ha ha. Bye. Next Christmas, I'll see you, right? <sighs> Hard conversation, right? Perhaps Judah does not want to talk about it. But I would, I would dare to venture out and think it is actually Judah who owns and tells this story himself. 
And perhaps he is telling Perez and Zara the story of the heroics of her mother, who God uses in her brokenness, and he is intentional so the story is told throughout the generations, not hidden away. Why do I think that? Notice what Judah says. Finally, after running away from all kinds of issues of his life, selling his brother, running from the family, marrying to just get into society, being away from his own family, deceiving and fearing, he finally sees Tamar, and finally, in light of Tamar's righteousness, he also sees his own brokenness and states, she is more righteous than I am. I am the biggest deceiver. She's not. I deceived my brother. She's okay. My own father. I deceived my brother. I deceived my own father. I deceived my, mother, uh, my own daughter-in-law. I am worse sinner than Tamar can ever imagine her to be. Right? Isn't that similar to testimony of Paul? But not only of his words of admission here, but in the very next narrative of Joseph, we find Judah transforming himself. We find Judah is back with his family now in chapter 39 and on. And he goes to see Joseph due to the famine by God's providence. And when Joseph, who was now the second in command of the Egyptian uh, empire, tests his brothers by asking for Benjamin, the youngest son, to be kept back for their safety, youngest brother. So his youngest brother to be held captive so that the brothers could be tested. But it was none other than now Judah who speaks up and says this in Genesis chapter 44. So please, my Lord, let me stay here as a slave instead of the boy. And let the boy return with his brothers. For how can I return to my father if the boy is not with me? I couldn't bear to see the anguish this would cause my father. Remember, this was a man who said, let's sell my brother for profit, right? This is a man who says, let's let her deceive rather than jeopardize his own self. He's the one who marries into society for his own gain. He does not do anything to risk his life here. But now he's willing to put his life on the line for his brother and his father, and transformation is seen indeed. Not only we see a transformation of Tamar, but transformation of Judah at the hand of Tamar's amazing story that are told to this day. All through the story of Tamar and redemption. That's why, church, this is our hope, our story of redemption, because we have greater Tamar with us who shows us as who we are clearly in this season. Church, this is our gospel hope this morning. Your story matters this Christmas. You are seen by our God ever so loud and clear in this Christmas season. Do not let the festivities of Christmas draw out his cries for you, his desires for you. Christ came to us to see us as wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. He sees you. He loves you. He came for you. This is our hope. This is Tamar's story, the woman of Christmas who brings us to Christ. Let's pray. Church, will you pray with me? Speak to your father who says, I see you 
And I invite you not only to come to our Heavenly Father, but come to our red chairs. Come and speak to our leaders. Be seen by our people as we learn to see ourselves in light of who God is. And we want to do our best through our failures to see you, to pray with you. Make some commitments to the Lord. Say, I'm going to walk through devotionals to learn to see who God is, to be comforted by the Word of God rather than the presence and the time off. Make some commitments to come and share, not only for you to share your story, but to hear others' story and to pray for the next three Sundays. Can we do that? Let's pray. Father, that's our commitment, Lord, at the Church of Christ in this season that often get hijacked by the festivities, football, basketball, all the gifts, all the fun times that are good stuff to help us not to forget the main reason why we come. Thank you for tame our story that are told throughout generations. Pray the Lord, our story of brokenness being restored will be told throughout generations by Christ who redeems our soul. Pray that to be true of us as we gather this morning. Christ, let me pray. Amen.